Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at RestoreAustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. All right. Hey, y'all. So um, I didn't. we moved to Austin about two years ago-ish from California. And I know y'all have opinions about that. Sorry. Um, just get past it. We're good now. So, but I didn't feel like I became a real, like, Austin person until I got my tattoo. And um, I've been wanting a tattoo for a long time. But I grew up in a really conservative Christian home. And so tattoos were not um, promoted. And um, so I called my dad to tell him, I'm just like, I'm just going to warn you, Dad. I'm going to get a tattoo. I said, Dad, I'm... I'm calling you to let you know that tomorrow's my tattoo appointment and I'm going to do it. And he goes, oh, no, you're not. I was like, well, Dad, I I actually am in my 30s. I have two kids and I'm married, so I think I'm going to do it. And he said, I just want you to know there are some church people that don't like tattoos. And I said, thank you. I will tell the church lady that she's, you know, that you understand where she's coming from. But it was so funny because it was such a cultural difference for him, right? So he was, he was so um, taken aback. And then to find out that not only did I get a tattoo, but I got Harry Potter black magic. Everybody had a few opinions on that. But that's fine because uh, here we are. Um, so when Zach called me and asked me to preach today about the Incarnation, I was so excited about it because the Incarnation is one of those things that we sort of all just know exists. We sort of inherit that belief. It's a doctrine that we follow. But beyond it being something that we might recite when we say a creed or that we have in our list of things that make us a Christian or make Christians Christians, we don't necessarily always understand the spiritual implications of it and why it actually matters. And so I'm excited to talk about it today because the incarnation for me has become a real marker of how I actually live out my faith in Jesus. And so I hope today that as we go through the scriptures that it becomes something different for you, that you can see it from a different angle. And so something I want to start with before we get into the scriptures is this. I believe that the Bible has to be worked out. I think that we have to wrestle with it. I think we have to hold it up to the light like a diamond and let the light shine through it. Turn it in different angles and see the different perspectives of it. So me standing up here and talking to you about it isn't me telling you what to do. I actually want to be up here so that we can wrestle together. This should be the starting point of the conversation And from here, you guys continue to talk and work things out. Does that sound good? Okay, so perfect. Because the next thing is I like to be a little bit interactive. So when I say to you, does that sound good, I hope you either say yes or no. Also, I'm going to ask you a few questions. No wrong answers. I'm not quizzing you. I just honestly want to get to know you 
I want to get you to get to know you and you and you so that as a community, we sort of learn to work these things out. Does that sound good? Yes. yes. Okay. So we're going to start in the book of John. Just to give you some signposts about where I'm heading. We're going to start in John, the Gospel of John, just John 1, a few verses there. And then I'm going to talk to you about a religion that was prominent during the first century that we see sort of come out in John's writing. And then I'm going to talk to you about um, an empire that was present during the first century. And then we're going to come back to John again. So if at any point in time you think to yourself, she's lost her way, I promise I will land the plane. And if I don't, the clock's going to run out anyway, so it's good news for you. So, okay, Book of John, Gospel of John. Um, and scholars think that the Book of John was written sometime during the first century. They don't really know, so they're just like, I don't know, sometime during that hundred years. We're going to just ballpark it. And so they've done that, and um, during that time, there was a religion or a philosophy of religion or a philosophy, like their categories for religion were a lot different than ours, and it was called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was a prominent thought practice, prominent religion during that time, and if you, were, if you believed in Gnosticism, you were called a Gnostic. And something about Gnostics and Gnosticism is that they really held on to a duality, okay? This was very important to them. They had a clear-cut line between flesh and spirit. So everything that had to do with the flesh, every single thing we thought of, we did, desires we had, anything pertaining to the flesh was considered to be bad, if you were Gnostic. And anything that had to do with the spirit, so any desire we had, thought we had, belief we had, that had to do with the spirit would considered good, was considered good if you were Gnostic. And they really held tight to these. So if you were a member, if you were Gnostic, then you really paid attention to this duality. And you did everything you could to push down the desires of your flesh. And you did everything you could to uplift the desires of your spirit. Because for Gnostics, they believed that they needed to liberate the spirit. Okay, so it sort of uh, was a problem for them because although they believed the flesh was bad, every single person in the world has a human body, and we all have flesh, right? And so their way of dealing with that problem is they said there, everybody has a body of flesh, but there's actually a divine spark, a spirit within them. And what our point on earth is to liberate that divine spark, to free it, what we as Christians call to receive salvation. And the way that Gnostics believed that was done is that they had to find and grab a hold of and understand a secret thought, what they would call a gnosis. And once they grabbed a hold of that secret thought, then they could liberate their divine spirit, and they would live on, and their body would die, but they would live on. But it was a very individualized path. So the way that I found the secret message, the secret gnosis, the secret knowledge, was different than the way you found it, and it was different than the way you found it. And that was because there was also a little bit of a competition, right? I mean, it wasn't a race, but it was a race. And it didn't matter if you found it, but it did a little bit. So it was very individualized. So if we could kind of just um, elevator pitch what Gnosticism was, I put it up here. Gnosticism was about individual salvation achieved by believing the right things. So to be a Gnostic was to care 
mostly about yourself and how you could find salvation. And it was done by believing the set of right things. Gnosticism was about individual salvation achieved by believing the right things. I don't know about you, I don't know your story, but where I come from in the Christianity that I was raised up in, that sounds a lot like it. It was really about me and Jesus and what Jesus came to do for me. And the way I got there was believing the right things. And as a young kid, if you are told this message, it actually produces some harm to you. I remember so clearly sitting... um, with my family in the pastor's office, and we were going to get baptized. And the pastor said to me, he said, well, I think he said to everybody, but it felt like it was just to me. Um, And he said, baptism is one of the many things that you have to do and you have to believe in in uh, in order to get to heaven. And I um, am a person that worries anyway, and so I spent the largest portion of my adolescent life staying up at night wondering if I had done the right things and what were those secret things and who can tell me. So one thing we see in the Bible, and we see John doing this, and that's why I'm going to point that out, is that the biblical writers take something of the current culture and then they use that thing. So we're talking maybe a method that people tell stories or an ideology or a philosophy or a poem, and then they use that story and then they flip it and reframe it to talk about God or to talk about Jesus. And they do that for a few reasons. Number one, so that culture has a frame of reference, right? Like when God came on the scene and Jesus came on the scene, it was all new, it was, everything was new about it, and people didn't have a frame of reference to understand it. So if the biblical writers use something from culture to talk about Jesus or to talk about God, then people have a, a point of reference to understand it. But the other, reason why, the other reason why they do it is that they wanted to rewrite the narrative. They wanted to say, this is the narrative you're used to hearing, but this is the way that Jesus is going to play that out. So they wanted to rewrite it in terms of Jesus. And we see this all over. So we actually see this in um, creation, the creation story, right? In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And he made the sun and the moon and the stars. And it was good. We see this. And he does this. But if we look, the structure of the book and the way he pulls out the moon and the stars and the sun and all the elements of creation, and he sees that it was good, it's actually parallel to some ancient Near Eastern texts that talk about their own stories of creation. But their stories of creation is about all these gods and goddesses that are fighting, and they end up creating the earth. And so the biblical writers take a story like that, and they flip it and they reframe it to point towards Yahweh. So they say, no, Yahweh's the one that did that. It wasn't your gods and goddesses. We see that again in the book of Exodus. The Israelites are enslaved, and God is pulling them out. And we see these ten different plagues, right? And we reread those plagues, and they are, like, horrendous, and they're awful, and they're scary, but they also kind of seem to come out of nowhere. Well, scholars tell us that that's mythical history. So it's events that actually happened in history, 
but it's written like a myth because that's the way that people told stories. And so people of that time would have understood it. Oh, I see what's happening here. But the other thing about the plagues, which is amazing, is that every single plague is actually a slap in the face to a very specific god and goddess. And they said, see, these are your gods and goddesses, but this is who Yahweh is. He is bigger than they are. And so we see the biblical writers doing that all the time because they are trying to reframe something that is so familiar and give it new meaning and give it new life. And so in John 1, when he talks about the incarnation, he is doing the same thing. So if you have your Bibles, um, open up to John 1. We're going to do John 1, 1 through 5 to start, and it's also going to be up on the screen. So it says, in the beginning was the word. No, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So the Greek word here for the word word is logos. And John uses it to refer to Jesus. So he's saying, if we read that with that in mind, in the beginning, Jesus already existed. He was with God. And so he's talking about Jesus. But he uses the word logos for a very specific reason. Because in Greek, the word logos actually means word, but it means statement. And it means knowledge and the embodiment of an idea. And so what he's doing is he is taking the cultural backdrop of Gnosticism and he is going to reframe it. So he's using words that people would understand and he's going to reframe it. So he says, in the beginning was the word, the embodiment of the idea, the knowledge, and it already existed. It was with God and the word was God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. So if you're a Gnostic and you're hearing this or you're reading it, you're like, yes, those are my people. He's saying exactly what I thought, that there is this knowledge that's been there forever, and everything was created through it, and everybody has it. And so if you're a Gnostic, you're totally following along. You think John's speaking your language. And so then John goes on. Right? He goes on for a few more verses and he keeps talking about it and he keeps using the same word, logos, and word. And so then we go to verse 14 and he sort of brings it all to a head. And this is where he flips it and he reframes the story. He says, so the word, the logos, became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness and we have seen his glory the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Do you see what he did there? Do you see that he took this framework of logos, of idea, of thought, and he said there was a divine thought, there was a divine word, there was a divine logos, and yes, he was there from the beginning. Everything was made in and through him, but then he became flesh. 
And he took the very things that the Gnostic believed and he flipped it on their head. So now if you're Gnostic and you've been tracking with John and then you hear him say that the thing that was the most holy to you actually embodied something that you thought to be evil. And now you're intrigued. Now you have a few questions about it. He places his emphasis on the incarnation for a reason. He flips the script when he talks about the spirit becoming human because without that, not much matters, right? So I want to bring up another point that's in the background of John, and then we'll come and put them both together. <clears throat> Politically speaking during this time, so you have John and you have this sort of um, competing religion of the Gnostics. And then politically and economically, you have the Roman Empire as in the background. So the Roman Empire was the biggest, the most powerful, uh, the most privileged, um, had the most land, and wanted more of all of that during that time. So if they saw something they wanted, they took it. And they took it with force. It wasn't, the Roman Empire wasn't a pretty and fun thing for most people. If they had land that they had their eyes on, they went in and they had a battle and they took it over and they took the people captives. And the, Rome, the thing about the Roman Empire is it wasn't just sort of government, right? It was actually a way of living. Everything they said to think, everything they said to believe, the way you ate, the way you dressed, the way you worked, where you ate, where you dressed, where you worked, all of it had to be under the Roman Empire. It had to be how they said things were done. And so a lot of people actually referred to the Roman Empire, and they referred to themselves as sort of an, as a kingdom. Now, how many of you have ever heard the phrase gospel or good news? Right? Okay, tell me... Um, like five or six of you, just, just yell out. I know you're so eager, so just hold back. Um, tell me, where have you heard it, or like how would you describe it in just a few words? Free gift. Story of salvation, yeah. Good news. Two more. It's going to make you all, <laughs> I have time, so this is fine. Anyone else? Like what comes to mind is arbitrary flannel graph from when I was in Sunday school. Um, but it really is this Christian catchphrase, right? We have used it to mean all of those things. And we use it all the time. It is the good news of God. It's the good news of salvation. It's the free gift. It's the story. It's God incarnate coming, living as a human, and then his death and resurrection so that we are free. The problem is, is that the good news, the way we use it, is most often referring to the end of things. Like the good news is that we don't die and go to hell. The good news is that Christians die and go to heaven. That is how it's mostly used. And it's sort of this um, nebulous end pointing to things. But actually, we were not the first people to use the phrase gospel or good news. We actually took it 
from the Roman Empire who used it first, and we reframed it, and we wrote the narrative. So the way that the Roman Empire used it is this. Anytime they expanded their empire, anytime they went into a city and conquered it, anytime their purposes were sort of advanced forward, they said the gospel of Rome or the good news of Rome is spreading. And that's what they would say. And so you would hear that. If you lived during that time, you would hear that all the time. Because the gospel and good news of Rome meant one thing. It meant that their purposes were expanding. And if you were a privileged member of society, that was a good thing for you. Because if you were a privileged member of society and you sort of bought into what the Roman Empire was selling, and you had privilege and you had power, then when the Roman Empire expanded, you got more privilege and you got more power. So the good news of Rome was really good news to you. But if you were a lower member of society, say you were a slave, then the good news of Rome expanding wasn't good news to you. Because the more power that Rome got, the less power that you got. The more privilege that Rome got, the less privilege you got. Because as their power and might expanded, you knew as a slave that your chances of finding freedom got less and less and less. So to hear that the good news of Rome, the gospel of Rome was expanding, that just wasn't good news for you. And you also knew it wasn't good news for anybody in that city that they conquered. Because the reason that you became a slave is that someone came in and they conquered your city. And they tore you away from your friends and your family and your community, your children and your parents. And they said, you will go here now and you have no more freedom. Instead, you are owned by this person. And so if you were a slave and you heard that the good news of Rome was expanding, it wasn't good news for you, but it also wasn't good news for anyone like you. The phrase good news was actually a terrifying phrase for many people. It was marked by violence. It was marked by oppression, by slavery, by hatred. It wasn't good news for a lot of people. So now that I've ruined the catchphrase for you, um, let's see if we can redeem it a bit because that's what Paul sought out to do. Okay? So we're going to uh, turn now to Romans 1. And in um, the first uh, part of Romans 1, we have like a few, five or six verses. Um, I'm not sure if the. Oh, okay. So I just have, um, yeah, okay, this works. So um, I'm just going to go through. There's like five or six verses in the first one, and I'm just going to hit them quickly so that we can see how Paul uses the phrase gospel or good news. Some translations will say gospel. Some will say good news. Same thing. They're interchangeable. Okay, Romans 1.1. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. He's um, right there with slave. He's aligning with the people that are probably reading this that need a hope. Chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. One, two. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. 
1.3. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. 1.9. God knows how often I pray for you. Day and night I bring you and your needs in prayer to God, whom I serve with all my heart by spreading the what? Good news about his son. And 115, so I am eager to come to you in Rome to preach the good news. So he uses it again and again and again because he wants to reframe it. He wants to rewrite the story. He wants to say Rome is not the only kingdom. There is a new kingdom and there is a new king and they are being marked by something different. Every single place that Roman good news is marked by oppression, is marked by slavery and expansion by force. Paul is setting out to say the good news of Jesus, the good news of the new kingdom, is set out by equality, by freedom, and expansion by grace. He's totally flipping the script so that if you are a slave, you have a new hope. If you have been oppressed, if you have been marginalized, there is something for you that is actually good news. So we're going to go back now to John. I'm going to read John 1.1, and I'm going to read John 1.14. It's going to come up on the screen because this is from Tim Shell, the uh, Bible translation that Zach told me that I was working on. Or Zach, he didn't tell me that. I told him, and he told you, um, that I'm working on. And why I want to read this to you and why I wrote this is, as you can see, there is so much going on behind the scenes of the scriptures. Like, there's so much. And not everybody goes to restore and has people like Zach and your other pastors, because I've been here and I've listened online, that tell you what's going on behind the scenes. And so sometimes it's tough to pick it up and to get this big picture and this grand scheme of things that's going on. And so I wrote it so that anybody could pick it up and could read it. So John 1.1, we've already read this. These two verses we've already read. I'm rereading them again now that we have this background and through this other lens. In the beginning, when God spoke, colors and textures splashed across the earth, and his word manifested life itself. All things were created in and through God's word, and it was good. His word was God. Mysteriously, his word was also with God. He did not work alone. God has never been alone. With him was Christ, the divine messenger, the authority of every breath spoken on earth, the covenant among all living things, and the good news of all creation. Where things began and where they will end. Over prophets, priests, and kings, Christ was not only with God in the beginning, but he was and still is one with God. 114. That very light beaming through every living thing became flesh and lived among his creation. Christ's deepest expression of love for us was seen when he became one of us. And his entrance into the world was his greatest act of love. Housing the spirit of Christ that was from the beginning, his fullness is seen in human form. For in Jesus, the only son from the father, it was the start of a new family, one full of grace and truth instead of shame and systems. In order to bring good news that is actually good news, it all hinges on the incarnation. All of it. 
Because the incarnation is not just something that we believe in. It is not something floating around that's been there since the beginning of time that we've sort of inherited through our belief system. The incarnation is actually an invitation for us to embody the spirit of God and to step out into communities and to bring healing and hope and freedom to people in tangible ways because that's what Jesus did. Without the incarnation, none of it really mattered. Because Jesus came in, he embodied the spirit of God, and we see and we read that he healed people, he fed the hungry, he brought dignity, and he set people free. In order for good news to be good news for everybody, then it has to have flesh on it. It has to have these tangible representations that we go out and people are actually being set free, that there's an actual hope that they can hold on to. If what we are saying and doing and believing is not good news for everybody and it doesn't bring real life hope, then it isn't good news. Amen? Amen. So hands to heaven, I promise you that when Zach told me we were gonna preach on this, I knew we would take this angle. I'm like, that's perfect. And then he said, it also happens to be Freedom Sunday. And we're going to have somebody from International Justice Mission come. And I absolutely love that. And it's something I love about Restore. Is that you have a lot of opportunities to take the gospel and to put some flesh on it. IJM is one of those ways. Someone's going to come up to you here in just a minute and talk to you about it. But I, want, I um, love IJM, and I wanted to um, look up some more recent statistics than what I had before. And what I found is that it says that there are 40 million slaves globally today. So we often, like when we talk about being a slave to something in our culture, and especially in America, we attach it to things like, I'm a slave to my iPhone. I'm a slave to something else. Those are all problems that need to be worked out. But when we read about slavery in the Bible and we read about somebody owning someone else, that's actually happening on a local and global scale. One in four of those slaves is a child. And it also says that human trafficking is a $150 billion industry annually. So when I see something like that, and I hear a message of the incarnation, I know what the call is. There is something that we can do tangibly to actually set people free, to bring the good news in a way that goes beyond a belief that we've held or a doctrine we've heard and into the incarnation to embody the spirit of God and to link arms and go together and to actually see people be set free. Amen? So I'm going to pray for us, and then someone's going to come up and talk to you guys about the great work that IJM is doing. Jesus, thank you. Um, for the way that you have come, for the way that you have shown us what it looks like to embody you, to step into the things that you care about. And thank you that we get to participate with you in the gift of setting people free, of bringing healing and wholeness where things are hurt and broken.
God, I ask that you would be with us, that we would be people that um, not only believe things, but that do things, and that the good news that we bring really is good news to everybody. In Jesus' name, amen.